from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer whose stories spring from a meta-narrative of his life. He mixes fact with fiction and fiction with philosophy. He's joining me today to talk about his current work entitled Crooked Smile, as well as his previous and upcoming short story collections. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Jack Moody. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me, Vince. I really do appreciate it a lot. Yeah, thank you for joining me. I came across your book on Outcast Press's website when I was doing some research for an interview that I did with Nevada McPherson. And Um, anytime I hear the word nihilism in the description of a book, (laughs) I take note because I like stories that explore the narrative of just how dark and hopeless some people's existential situations can really get. So tip of the cap to you for being vulnerable enough to put that on display i appreciate it thank you i'm glad you read the book i really appreciate that and uh before we get into the podcast let me just say congratulations for having a year of sobriety on the 23rd of this month yeah thank you very much and that meant a lot to me that you reached out like that i really appreciated that now you didn't celebrate like in the wrong way right no, of course. Not. Okay, <laughs> that's like the big joke. It's like, oh, you gonna uh, go out for a beer and celebrate? Yeah, yeah fuck fucking you. a. <laughs> so the description of your novel states that it's autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Is it pure autobiography told in an entertaining way, or is it more like autofiction, meaning that it's an autobiography peppered with fictional events to make it more interesting? Um. It's about as close to a memoir as you can possibly get. I didn't want to write a memoir. I'm not a memoirist. I'm a fiction writer. I like writing fiction. Everything in this book, I'd say probably like 95% of it is true and 5% is fiction. And most of the fiction is like specific dialogue that I just wrote to get the story across and dates and like people's names have been changed and dates have been kind of moved around or kind of smudged together in some cases. But that's really it. I mean, it it is my story. And yeah, I like that kind of style that you don't see too often, except for that one guy. 
I think he's Norwegian or Swedish, Carl something, but it's called like My Struggle. And it's like a these huge tomes that are these autobiographical books. And they're basically memoirs, but it's like told in a fictional way. But other than him, I just kind of took a leaf from that idea of like Jack Kerouac and I guess Bukowski and like John Fonte. I just like that kind of style more where it's like you're telling your story, but through a fictional lens where you can kind of have more fun with it about just like creating a story. I just, I wasn't as interested in writing a memoir, especially how old I am. I'm not that old. I got a lot more life to live before I like actually would ever want to sit down and write like this was my life story, you know. I really just wanted to write a book and I just took very, very heavily from my own life experiences. Okay. So the fiction was more for almost legal reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Most change the, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so if I had to sum up Crooked Smile, I would say that it's the Sisyphean misadventures of an alcoholic navigating the throes of existential angst. And, the reason I say Sisyphean is because it seems like in the book, not so much your character, but more of the way you yourself wrote it, you kind of have this absurdist view of life. You know, life is absurd, so just embrace it. Mm -hmm. Do you draw any of your life view from uh, Albert Camus' philosophy of absurdism? And yeah, I think I do. Um, not... Not like directly and specifically, but yeah, the, especially The Stranger was one of those books that really resonated with me. I was like, this makes sense to me. Like, this is kind of how I see things, just the utter absurdity of it. And I also kind of saw this like this almost like Eastern philosophy kind of Taoist idea in it that it's just kind of like life happens and you just kind of move with it and you accept these things around you as absurd as they are. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Camus was a big, it still is a big influence on me, just the way that he saw the world and The Stranger specifically. It's one of my favorite books ever and writers like him. And I've actually been thinking about it a lot because my writing comes out so nihilist. And I've been told that I'm a nihilist a lot of times by the people who read my work. And I think that I'm like, I'm more nihilist than I think I am on the surface. But also, I think it's partly because with the characters I write, and especially the autobiographical book, Crooked Smile, I kind of leaned into the darker aspects of myself. And so kind of leaned into those feelings, like the darkest feelings and ideas that I have. And so it, it ends up leaning more nihilist than I probably am in real life, because I think I'm a little more optimistic of a person. But I mean, to be fair, I think a lot of that came out of quitting drinking. I think maybe I was that negative at the time. Yeah, it's funny how, I mean, I would assume you obviously would consider yourself like an existential nihilist. Like, yeah. you know, life has no objective meaning, but there's like a difference between passive nihilism, which is like fatalism, like, yeah. oh, fuck it. Mm -mm. And then yeah. there's active nihilism, which is, I know what's going on. Let's deal with it. Yeah. You know, more of an absurdist point of view. And that's why kind of existentialism and, and how you brought up when we were emailing that I'm kind of like an optimistic existentialist is kind of how I see it is I don't think that there's any driving force in the universe or there would ever be one that we could possibly fathom. I don't think there's any kind of destiny. There's no sky daddy. And the only thing that I really do believe is that 
on like an individual sense, you're the only person that creates meaning for your life. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do that, then there is no meaning. I don't think there's any meaning in life other than the one that you create for yourself, which then does create meaning. So I think it all just comes from the self. You carve out your own path and your own journey. And there's really no outside forces other than that, mm. other than what you create with your own understanding and your own mind and what you choose to do going forward. And for me, some people can see that as incredibly negative and kind of scary, I guess. And I, I get it. But to me, it, it's freeing. It's really it's joyful to me. It's like you have complete control. There's nothing else driving you. This is all up to you what you do with the time you have here. And it's really freeing and exciting. You know, it kind of creates an adventure out of life. And it's totally up to you, whatever the hell you want to do with it. And nothing else is going to create these roadblocks for you other than yourself, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can understand where they're coming from. Fear of your own mortality mm -hmm. and not wanting, you know, wanting to believe that there's something in control, something that's going to keep something needlessly tragic from happening to you, you know, just out of the blue. Mm -hmm. But um, what I draw comfort from is the fact that I can sit with no cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't stand it when something makes me feel good, but my brain is just screaming at me in the background. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, I totally know what you mean. So what inspired you to write the book? I mean, I didn't get a chance to read your previous, I believe it was a collection of short stories. Yeah, right? Dancing Your Broken yeah. Records. Um, so I, I don't know how this differs from that. Like, is it? Uh, the first book was similar. You know, I just, I kind of took that to heart. It's like, well, you write what you know. And at the time, all I knew was that I was a fuck up and I was a drunk and I had a problematic life. And... So I wrote about that. There are like fictional stories, like pretty just kind of transgressive fictional short stories interspersed. But the driving narrative is still this autobiographical character, Henry Gallagher, who then I just used as the main character for the novel for the next book. But it's similar themes, similar stories being told just from an, you know, an autobiographical fiction standpoint. So it's, it's not too different. I think the writing just was less developed in the first book, uh, but it did pretty much carry right over to the next book. The last story in the first book took place at like the end of 2017. And the first chapter in Crooked Smile is maybe like five or six months after that, just kind of takes right off where the last book ended. Okay. Well, so in an interview on My Views Are My Own podcast, you said you wrote the book over the course of three years. Was any of it written sober or were you drinking um, throughout? No, no, it was all. Oh, Crooked Smile. Yeah. yeah, about about the first two years. I mean, I was drinking throughout the entire time. There were stints of sobriety. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I don't think it was ever longer than maybe two weeks. But for the first two years that I was writing the book, it was mostly written while I was actively drinking like while I was drunk there are some parts of the book where I wrote while I was literally blacked out and it wasn't until the last year like 2019 going into 2020 where my liver was really fucking with me and I saw that the drinking was taking a toll on my ability to write mm -hmm. and also I saw that the writing was overly simplistic 
Also, it felt overly emotional. I saw when I got drunk and I was writing these emotions just like poured out of me a little too heavily Mm -hmm. and it became too somber and uh, too dense. And so the last year I kind of made a rule where if you're going to be drinking, you don't write while you're drinking. You have to be sober at least while you're writing. And that kind of turned into, okay, I'll take a day off every other day to get drunk. Then I'll be hung over the next day. I won't be able to write. Then that next day, once I feel all right, I'll write, and then I'll get drunk afterward. And that was pretty much the entire life of this book. Okay. So I'm trying to to get it straight in my head. So you said the first two years you were actively drinking, and then the last year you were not? Uh, at least while writing. Like I didn't, at least while right. Yeah, okay. that's it. The, okay. There's really no difference. I can split hairs and be like, well, I was sober for, you know, a few weeks or maybe a month during this period of this period. But I was drinking the entire time. It wasn't really until the last year that I wasn't actively drunk while writing. <laughs> OK, yeah. That's so, what I mean. yeah, the reason I was trying to clarify that is because I was curious to know what you noticed about writing while drinking versus sober. And when I say sober, like, you know, now yeah. that you've. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, from like, just like a clear mind. Um, yes, yes, yeah, yes. I know what you mean. I'm way more creative. Everything is better. Everything. And I don't know. I try not to talk about it too much because I don't want to ride that line where it like makes me sound like I'm on a fucking soapbox or something because this is just for me. I had a serious issue with drinking. I had to quit drinking. Anybody else I don't care at all. You know, I'm only speaking about myself when I talk like this. But my creativity is miles ahead of what it was before. My ability to write is miles ahead of what it was before. My attention to detail and to the craft itself, miles ahead. And my work ethic and my drive, it's astronomical, the difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, it took me three years to write that book. And it was because I was drinking so much. And it was, I think, like a 70,000 word book. And in the one year that I've been sober, I completed a novella that comes out in October that was like 25,000 words. And I'm about 50,000 words through my fourth book. So I've written the same amount in this one year I've been sober as it did, you know, three years while I was drinking. So that alone is like, I'm just able to write a lot more and I'm able to think a lot more clearly and have more ideas and explore more creative ideas that I just didn't have like the mental ability to because I was either hungover and sick and just couldn't think straight or I was drunk and just muddled and I could only write about what was directly happening around me. Hmm. Yeah. And to be fair, I don't think you're in danger of getting on a soapbox. You're not like making it sound as though nobody should drink, period. It's just if you're drinking to the point where it's tanking your liver, that's probably something you should not do. (laughs) Yeah. And it's it's Yeah, I'm just, and the reason I'm so careful about it is because, and it's fucked up and it's twisted, man, but I was literally dying by the end. I mean, I was going to get cirrhosis of the liver. I was going to be dead sometime in my 30s is what the doctor told me, if not earlier. And people came up to me all the time, at least on like four or five separate occasions. People sat me down and were like, hey, you know, if you keep doing this, you're going to be dead by 30. And like that specifically, all unprompted, all separately, that 
age, 30. You're going to be dead by 30. But nobody really gave me shit for my drinking. Most people celebrated. They enjoyed it. It was once I got sober that I started getting maybe attacked is a strong word, but it sure felt like it from a lot of different people that I was weak for quitting and that I couldn't handle alcohol, that I'm getting up on a soapbox and preaching because I'm saying that I'm proud of being sober for a month or whatever. And to shut the fuck up at a bunch of people, you know, saying that I'm a pussy because I can't just have three or four drinks and then stop. I was getting it from all angles, from people I didn't know and people I knew. And it was really frustrating. So that's why I'm kind of careful about it, because people sure fucking care all of a sudden when you quit drinking. And I can kind of hear myself sounding a little bitter. And I think I kind of am. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it pissed me off. Like, this is like the best thing I've ever done for myself. And it's so goddamn hard. And I'm just getting shit on for it. Uh -huh. um, but also, I'm incredibly stubborn. So that kind of just fueled me a little bit more like, yeah, fuck you. I'm going to stay sober for even longer now, you asshole. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like whatever works, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't want to assume anything. I mean, I have some ideas, but it's not worth saying out loud. But I have a feeling I know why people say that kind of stuff to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm assuming from your very detailed and realistic scene at the beginning of the book that you actually had spent time or at least maybe tried to admit yourself into a psych hospital. Uh, yeah, I did. Can you tell me about that experience? Sure. Yeah. Um, it was 2018. And uh, this is the event that started off the book because I had finished Dancing to Broken Records. I had finished writing it, editing it, everything on my uh, 24th birthday at the end of uh, 2017. And this happened, I don't remember what date I gave it in the book, but in real life, I went to the psych ward in March of 2018. I was grossly underweight. I was starving myself because I didn't want to gain weight uh, because I was drinking about two or 3,000 calories a day. And I was first diagnosed with bipolar because I have a family history of bipolar. My dad is, my sister is. So they assumed that they just kind of looked at me and they were like, oh, you're obviously batshit crazy in some fashion. Let's just, you know, throw bipolar at it. And so they put me on a mood stabilizer. And I don't know if it was directly as a result of it or if it was just, you know, it was just my time to go crazy. But I had been on the mood stabilizer for a few days and I had been getting really suicidal and just felt sick and couldn't really think straight. And the closest thing I can call it is, I guess, like a manic episode. It was kind of a psychotic episode to the point where I just like I didn't understand I was in reality. I couldn't think straight. I was talking a mile a minute. I was just rapidly moving around. I thought people were following me. I was really paranoid. And on top of this, I was drinking really, really heavily to try to slow me down, I guess. And I don't remember if I had been at my therapist and he recommended it or if like my mom or somebody had gotten wind of it and reached out to my psychiatrist. But anyway, uh, my psychiatrist ended up basically being like, hey, you need to go here right now. And I don't know if he called ahead or what. The whole thing is a fucking blur to me. And I mean, I was barely in reality. I ended up going to this mental facility in Portland where I'm from and tried checking myself in. And from there, everything that happened in the book is exactly how it happened. 
Yeah, they at first didn't take me uh, because I wouldn't admit that I was suicidal because I was too paranoid. I thought they'd lock me in forever. You know, I just wasn't thinking straight. And I ended up just kind of laying on a chair for a few hours, like in the lobby until I like admitted, like, I'm not leaving until I get help or I'm going to kill myself. So then I got admitted and I got like a 72 hour hold and they uh, gave me a new medication. It was a different mood stabilizer that didn't work either. But once I got out, that's when I started going to AA meetings because I was with the person at the time who basically, you know, gave me an ultimatum, like you quit drinking or, or it's over kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's where the book starts, like right there. Okay. So did you go into the facility, like the main reason for like a medical detox? No, I did nothing to do with drinking. Uh, oh, okay. I was just insane. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was purely uh yeah i had no plans on actually quitting drinking at all okay even when i went to the aa meetings i knew in the back of my head i'm just going to these to you know assuage my partner i'm not going to quit drinking i knew that for sure i had no plans so that was just because i didn't want to kill myself or drive my car 100 miles down a street and kill somebody else by accident i just also, I just couldn't think straight. And, and I had a professional telling me, hey, go here. And so I said, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Well, when you did finally give it up, did you have to medically detox? No, but I probably should have. Yeah. Um, did you have to, were you sick for a while? Yeah. 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 It was it was pretty bad. I was shaking and sweating and, and you know, DTs and, and everything. And they lasted for about a week, uh, a week or two. I definitely should have gone to medical detox. And I want to say this if anyone's listening and is thinking they need to quit. Don't do what I did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> don't white knuckle it. It's it's incredibly dangerous. I could have died. So yeah, you want to get in contact with the doctor, whoever you can, medical professional who can talk you through it and get you through the steps that you need to do. But I did have, and he was so, so helpful. My dad, who um, we had a difficult relationship when I was younger, but since then, he's just, he's the best guy in the world. I, I love him. He's been sober for, I think, 34 years now. And he still goes to meetings. He goes to meetings every week. He's a sponsor for people. He's helped out guys, you know, drinking five times worse than I was. And I called him and, and I think I was maybe three days sober at this point. And I'm just shaking all over. I'm so anxious, you know, drenched in sweat. And I like start breaking down in tears because the relationship I have with my pops is like, you know, you don't really, we don't talk about anything more than surface level stuff. You know, it's like, Hey, yeah, did the Red Sox win? Oh, sick. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I just kind of broke down and I'm like, dad, I'm terrified. I don't know if I need to go to a hospital or not, but I'm like three days sober and I'm scared and you are in the program and you've been sober and just like immediately like just turned it off there wasn't like a father and a son it was like a sponsor and a sponsee and he's like okay just uh, tell me how much you've been drinking and i lied i told him less than i actually was which was a mistake because well i mean the reasons are obvious i didn't want him to be scared for me i didn't want him to be ashamed and so I think I told him I was drinking maybe like 10 drinks, four or five days a week. And it was more like 20 or 25 drinks, like six days a week, which was still, I had cut back considerably by the end because my liver just couldn't take it anymore. I was getting too sick. So I had cut down, but not as much as I had told him. 
and he's like, okay, well, you know, I've, I've taken guys to the hospital that were drinking like a half gallon a day. And that's like when you need a medical detox. From what you're telling me, I don't think you do. I think you're going to be fine. You have Ativan. You take the Ativan, take one a day and make sure that you're drinking water and you're doing whatever you can to just kind of stay present. Try going to a meeting every day. And I think it was like 100 days, 100 meetings. And then he said, and if it is still worse, if you think it's getting worse, then you call me and I'll come pick you up and I'll take you straight to a detox. And before that, actually, I have a short story out that's uh, in this fourth book that I've been working on called Pink Elephants. Mm-hmm. And that got published in Thin Slice of Anxiety and with Paper and Ink magazine. Shout out to them. But it's it's about this guy who's trying to quit booze and is hallucinating his dead mother. (laughs) And it begins with him on a phone conversation with somebody like at a desk for a detox clinic. And the conversation is basically like, well, uh, do you have insurance? Like, can you pay? And he's like, no, I don't have insurance. But like, I think I'm going to die. I need to go. And she's like, well, do you have anybody that can pay $1,000? Because it's going to be $1,000 out of pocket if you can't. And we can get you in in about two weeks. And he's like, no, you don't understand. I'm going to die. That whole conversation is basically lifted word for word from a conversation I had with somebody before I called my dad. Basically like, nah, we can't get you in unless you want to hang around for two weeks or you got a thousand fucking bucks on you. And I just ended up hanging up on that person. That's when I called my dad and went to a couple meetings after that. That was when it started. And I I stayed sober that time, this time. That was in September, the end of September. Well, speaking of your dad and sponsorship, did you actually like do the 12-step program or did you just kind of go to meetings? I've been going to meetings very sparsely on and off since I was like 22. I'd go to a meeting or two every time it wasn't for me. I really wanted it to be especially this time before I didn't give a shit. I was just going to go, uh, but I knew I'd keep drinking. So it wasn't going to work anyway. And I knew that, but this time I went to a few meetings for the first week when it was like really rough. Actually, I don't even think the first week, I think maybe beginning of the second week, cause I was frankly, I was just too sick, but I started going to some meetings and it just kind of, it's not for me. It's not how I'm able to do it. And Everybody else I know who is sober, including my dad and my mom, and a good friend of mine who's been sober since he was, I think, 22, and he's my age, they all did the 12 steps. They all still go to AA meetings, and it, you know, and they credit it with saving their life. I just, I don't know how to pin it down, why it didn't work for me. I'm not good at sharing personal things about myself, which is kind of ironic because I wrote a whole fucking book about it, but <laughs> I think you know what I mean, like in person with people. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty close to the chest kind of guy, like old school Irish Catholic shit, man. (laughs) And so I just, from there, I just kind of, I just did it by myself and and I just kind of sunk my life into work. I cut out any kind of social life. I started writing like crazy. I started a new job and just worked my ass off almost as like a replacement for booze, just like obsessively really hardworking to the point that I was like, getting sick and like passing out and like dehydration to the point where I'd have to take a day or two off and sleep for like 24 hours, like working the hell out of myself because I needed to like hurt myself some other way, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As some kind of replacement in the interim. Mm -hmm. 
So I guess that was my process. And again, I don't think it's one I recommend. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think it's, I think that's it's that way for a lot of people, even people that go to meetings, because like, what are AA meetings synonymous with? Cigarettes and coffee, two <laughs> stimulants, you yeah. know? So you're off the booze, now you're like, fucking stimulant, stimulant, yeah. you know? So, yeah. and like a lot of people uh, start having issues with sex addiction, mm-hmm. you know, they just kind of, it's just kind of the whack-a-mole game. Yeah. <laughs> you push yeah, you one gotta, down, the other one pops up. You, you gotta know? fill it with something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's just an addict, you know, but uh, so I still have that addict mentality and I always will, you know, that's just how it is. But I chose to fill it with the writing and with work. You know, I calmed down with that. You know, I saw I was like still kind of hurting myself. And it's like, you know, (laughs) just because you're not drinking doesn't mean you can't still hurt your body. Like you got to take it easy and drink some fucking water, you idiot. (laughs) But um, I just replaced it with writing, with creating. And I've just kind of like, put my nose in and I've just been writing like crazy, enjoying the hell out of it. And so I've kind of transferred that mentality of like, go, 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 you know, but into something that like genuinely brings me joy and makes me happy. Sublimation. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, so one of the aspects of the book that I'm hoping isn't fiction, uh, can you tell me about Uncle Morgan? Yes. And will there ever be a standalone about him? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, but uh, yes, my Uncle Morgan is real. That's not his real name, obviously. And he did pass away. He passed away in, it must have been 2019, I think. Whatever date it is in the book is when it actually happened. And he was an interesting guy. Everything about him that I wrote about is true. He was in the Hells Angels. He was a Vietnam vet. He sold guns that he took over from Vietnam through the Hells Angels. He had a whole laboratory of weed plants that he ended up getting busted for. And that little article, for the people that haven't read the book, you should read it. Um, That article that I put in, where it's like explaining the crime that he did, where he was busted by the FBI or whatever, and he had like 30 plants and all these Uzis and pistols. That was an actual article (laughs) that I just replaced the names and the places and the date, I think. And I think I added one quote that was just a little humorous to me. But that article is basically word for word of what I found on him. And he did die in 2019. He went into a coma and just passed away. And my family had ostracized him a long time ago. And that's how I found out I was working at this bar in Portland. And I got a text from my mom to my sister and I just being like, hey, by the way, you know, your uncle's dead. And yeah, nobody was with him. He died alone, but he probably deserved it kind of thing. And I had only known great things about him. He was this really sweet guy, this really weird, interesting guy that I just loved as a kid. And he always tried Sounds to Sounds like an to entrepreneur. Me. Yeah, man. He had, he had hats, <laughs> a lot of different hats. <laughs> he also was, he was a lawyer. He was a defense lawyer who... Oh yeah, I forgot about that yeah, part. Yeah. Uh, who defended a lot of Hell's Angels uh, in court. And... Yeah, he got ostracized from the family because he ended up getting control or whatever of my aunt's savings, who was in a nursing home. And I think he was just given custody by her lawyer because he was a lawyer and he was the oldest sibling. And her savings was meant to be used for her cancer treatments. And he emptied it and did whatever with it, you know. And that's when he found out. And my dad ostracized him from the family. He's like, you're never going to talk to your niece and nephew ever again. You're never going to talk to me. You're never going to talk to your brothers and sisters. 
And then he allegedly put a hit out on my dad with the Hells Angels until my... Uh, I know that's horrible, but that's <laughs> no, funny as hell at crazy. the same time. <laughs> it's hilarious. And nothing ended up happening. So it is yeah. it's just fucking hilarious. Yeah. Until my other brother, or not my brother, my dad's other brother ended up reaching out and talking him down. So he put the fucking hit off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh but he God. still ended up never talking to us again. I was never able to talk to him. I think the last time I talked to him, I was maybe 10 or 11. I don't remember. Yeah. So you and I believe it was your sister met at a bar and toasted Uncle Morgan? Yeah. Just yeah. like in the book? Okay. Yeah, we did. Uh, we both loved him. My sister, she had a real rough time with my parents when she was still living at home. And so she left for a long time. She'd be in and out of the house without getting into too much detail, you know, in and out of, of different places. And ended up staying with my uncle for a while. And, you know, and he was the only family member that took her in when she was really having trouble. Nobody else would talk to her. Even my parents at the time wouldn't talk to her, but my uncle did. And he took her in. He, he helped her out. He took care of her. He let her stay with him for a while before she was able to then move on. You know, so to us, he was just, he was the sweetest guy. And we just didn't really see that side of him, I think on purpose, because he wanted to be a good uncle to these kids and didn't show that side of himself to us. So, you know, in a way, I kind of have a one-sided view of him. I wasn't privy to all that other stuff. I only know about it through stories. But when he passed, I wrote that chapter just about him because I just, I wanted something to live on through him. Mm -hmm. You know, that really stuck with me that like, oh yeah, he's just, he's dead. He was alone. That's it. You know, nobody else is going to remember him. And that just really bothered me. So I wrote that for him. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering about, keeping it in the book or not because it doesn't exactly pertain to the novel like the the narrative like i think it could have been taken out and the novel still would have been the novel but that was just something i left in for him you know for his memory i guess well where was the majority of crooked smile written and what was it written on like the actual act of writing where was I? yeah like i, I want to <laughs> believe like 80% of it was cocktail napkins. And... <laughs> <laughs> uh, at first, I did a lot of writing at bars. I'd have a notebook and I'd write it by hand in bars. Pretty much all of my very first book, Dancing Your Broken Records, almost everything was written either in a notebook on cocktail napkins or like on my phone notes while I was drinking at a bar. And that was the case also for this book for some of it. And the rest was just at my apartment in my computer, just isolated. About a quarter of the book was written just in those first maybe like five or six months of quarantine, where I was just locked down. I had nothing else to do. And the first like three months of quarantine, I just spent drinking my ass off and not doing anything. And then I was like, do you remember that you're a writer? Like, that's a thing you want to do? <laughs> do you want to like maybe finish this fucking novel, man? Uh, so then I just like knocked out a bunch of it, a bunch of like the most recent events in those last few months. And the very last one that takes place in June during my sister's wedding, I had been sober for a little bit. I had tried to be sober for a little bit before then, relapsed very quickly. I was sober again. I wanted to end the book on a positive note. Hmm. that this beautiful thing is happening. My sister is getting married. There's something beautiful happening in this world of this pandemic. And it was in June of 2020 when the protests over George Floyd were happening. 
And I wanted to find some kind of positive, kind of conflicting, absurdist message in the end. Mm -hmm. And it ends with me being sober. And I did relapse after. And I remember when I got the book published, and I think Outcast Press reached out to me and or reached back out after I'd emailed them that they were going to publish it. I think like the next month after I'd finished it, maybe in August, September of 2020. And it just kind of hit me like this book is going to come out and you're drinking your ass off. And maybe you didn't mean it to, but this book is basically a recovery novel. And I just thought like, I'm going to feel like such a fucking fraud if this book comes out in March and I'm still drinking. And so in September, there was a lot of different things going on. The doctor told me I was going towards cirrhosis. I wasn't able to write as much. I was very overweight again. But that was a big driving factor. It was like, you hope this book will help people. That's what I want to do with my writing for whatever avenue if it is. If it just makes them feel less alone, if it's an enjoyable story that gives them something to do and distract themselves, or if it's a book about you getting sober and maybe it'll help somebody else who has trouble drinking or with any kind of addiction. And you owe it to them and yourself to get sober and be sober when this book comes out. So I got sober, started on September 23rd. And yeah, like you were saying, I'm a little over a year sober now. And I was sober when the book came out. And that was really important to me. I'm glad I did. Well, uh, tell me a little bit more about your uh, short story collection, Dancing to Broken Records. Sure. Yeah. I started writing that when I was 21. And that's when I started writing seriously, too. I pretty much hit the ground running. Before that, before I was 21, I was never a big drinker. I had problems with other drugs. But some shit happened to me when I was 20 that ended up giving me a a PTSD diagnosis. And it hit me obviously really fucking hard because I got PTSD from it. And I started drinking right away because it worked. I was having nightmares I was paranoid as shit that people were following me. I was miserable. And I picked up booze because I had just turned 21 and I could legally get it. I remember like not long after everything happened, I was living in a different city at the time. I went to a liquor store. I picked up a pint of Old Crow and I got a notebook and I drank the pint and I started writing poetry just needed just some kind of creative outlet. And I just I just kept drinking from there. I, and it, it obviously only got worse over time. But I decided to start writing some short stories from there a few months later. And at first, it was just a bunch of different short stories, just seeing what I could write. And I wrote maybe 100 or 200 short stories. And it wasn't until a couple years later that I saw that, oh, like you could probably turn this into a collection. So I ended up going through a bunch of the short stories that I had written. None of them had gotten published. And I saw that there was this through line of like, oh, you're writing about your own experiences a lot. And there's this one character, Henry Gallagher, that's you. And this could be the crux of a book. This could be a thread that ties everything together. And so I took these stories I had written, put together a couple of other short stories I had written that kind of tied in with the themes that I was telling in this story And I was probably 23 at this point that I realized I had like a collection that I was putting together. And that's when I had more of a, of like a driven focus of like, okay, this is the theme. This is the ideas that you're playing with. Now that you know what you're trying to do, these are the kind of stories you want to write. And so I kind of tied it all together. 
And yeah, it was a bunch of short stories, a few stories like about my upbringing, about my childhood, about just kind of crazy situations I got into when I was drinking heavily in my early 20s, issues with relationships that came up as a result of my mental illness and my drinking. And it was kind of just a big book of self-reflection that ended on a pretty negative note because I ended up finishing the book. It's funny. The last chapter is the chapter called Laurel. And it's about this woman that I was with for a while. And I remember writing about it while I was with them. And we ended up breaking up. And the ending of the chapter was very different than what I was planning on it being. I thought this was going to be some saving grace. Like, oh, he found love. He found some reason to love himself. Maybe then he'll get sober after this. The stupidest mentality. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it didn't end well. And we did break up and it does end with him back at a bar after being sober for a while with this person. And I think it's a beautiful ending to that book. I really like how I ended it with him just right back to where he was at the beginning of the book, having realized that these issues are within yourself. There's no bandaid you can put on this. And that's why it's called dancing to broken records is like pretending to enjoy this monotonous, just over and over yeah. making the same mistakes over and over mm-hmm. or pretending that you're having fun because you're drunk you know yeah. you're dancing to this fucking skipping broken record you know what i mean mm-hmm. uh so that's what that book was about so was that the book you were talking about getting published in crooked smile yeah yeah okay. it was i think i called it the skipping record waltz in the book or something that's but, right yeah. yeah 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 but yeah okay. it was dancing broken records yeah and that entire chapter where Henry gets fired. He had been broken up with a few days before. He goes to get fucked up at a bar at 11 in the morning, gets a call. Turns out it's the publisher telling them him that he's going to get the book published. And then he ends up going on like a 12-hour bender after. That all happened in one day, and that was all 100% true. That really happened. I had just gotten fired that day. I was shithouse drunk at like 11 in the morning. And my editor for my first book called me from a blocked number, and I was paranoid as shit so i called that i pick up the phone i'm like who the fuck is this <laughs> and he's like uh is this is this jack moody I'm like yeah how the fuck do you know that do i sound moody motherfucker <laughs> and he's like yeah I'm, I'm calling from beacon and which is the actual name of the pub. i think i called him like lighthouse publishing or something in the book Close. um yeah beacon publishing group who published my first book and thank you very much uh to them and i'm sorry i was probably difficult to work with um and yeah i ended up talking with him on the phone right outside a bar smoking a cigarette like holding back puke and just getting hit with like the most conflicting feeling of just like existential dread and depression and elation and it was the weirdest day of my life and it just turned into this chaotic insane bender where i didn't i decided if this was like a leaving las vegas like last hurrah i'm gonna fucking die tonight bender or like, I am celebrating life and I couldn't fucking tell. And everything written in that chapter is exactly how it happened, uh, even how it ends, which people haven't touched on in any interviews. And I understand why. But that did also happen <laughs> at mm. the end of the night. Well, I haven't read your newest book, but from the description that I read, it's going to be kind of a sci-fi adventure. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a it's a. So nothing quite as personal as Crooked Smile? Not even close. Okay. This whole thing. This, so this collection of short stories I've been working on, this fourth book, 
And I have like 10 or so stories out there. If I'm sure you'll link my social media or whatever, but I have a link tree that has all these short stories that all be a part of this new book. They're totally fiction, like magical realism, sci-fi, horror, philosophical, like trippy, literary fiction, everything. And this novella was just going to be another short story about this immortal person who feels that immortality is a curse and is trying to find a way to find a cure for his immortality so he can finally die. And it's this huge epic. I mean, it's not even huge. It's a novella, but like it spans, you know, thousands of years. It goes from like a historical drama to, uh, you know, literary fiction in the present day to straight sci-fi, to dystopian, to just like total surrealism of him existing in a universe after the sun has died. And it's all just kind of this exploration of finding meaning in life and the toll that time takes on people and the toll that the inevitability of death takes on people. And how would you go about life if you had an unlimited amount of time and the fear of death wasn't a reality? And I kind of, I wrote about it from this kind of, existentialist kind of absurdist angle of that it would become a hell and and so throughout this novel he meets all these different people and these historical figures you know and he's just trying to find a way to finally end his life so that he can go on to anything else even if it's nothingness because to him existence is hell if there's no period at the end of it you know, and so I, I'm kind of exploring these kind of philosophical themes through just a really fun, entertaining novel. It's also just like a sci-fi adventure story that takes place all over the world. And that's partly why I'm so excited about it, because I think pretty much anybody can read it. If you want to look deeper into the themes of it, they're there and there's stuff to pick apart. There's a lot of symbolism that make it kind of an exciting book to discuss and, and look into. But also, if you just want a fun book to read, it's just it's a cool entertaining quick like adventure story you know big epic adventure and is it fair to say that crooked smile was kind of like this last singularity of catharsis and now you're going to be moving on to literary fiction yeah yeah i don't have any interest in writing about myself anymore partly because i'm having so much fucking fun mm -hmm. doing this mm -hmm. just writing stories like trying to be as creative as possible i look forward to it every day I'm writing pretty much every day and not because like, oh, you need to be on a schedule. You're a writer. It's like, I can't think of anything I'd rather be doing. It's so fun. And I'm enjoying every minute of it. And writing Crooked Smile was exhausting, depressing, incredibly difficult. Everything about it, the things that I lived through to then write about, the process of unearthing these things and reflecting on them and coming to terms with them through writing about them. It was a wholly unpleasant experience. I am so glad I did it because I truly credit writing this book with helping me get sober, helping me get to a better place mentally, helping me take better stock of all these things that I'm happy about and content with and all these issues that I had that were keeping me from having healthy relationships with just people in general. Mm -hmm. I faced all of that stuff by writing this book and it opened up you know, this like springboard for me to jump off and actually like do all this self work. I mean, I genuinely this sounds maybe stupid or cliche or, or hyperbolic, but I genuinely do think writing Crooked Smile saved my life. And so I'm so thankful to Outcast and Sebastian Weiss 
and Paige and everybody who worked on it and published it and got it out there for people who gave me a chance on this book. But I don't ever want to do that again. (laughs) (laughs) I feel you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, so I could be wrong, but did we even mention the title of your new novella, The Monotony of Everlasting? The Monotony of Everlasting, out October 1st in paperback and audiobook with Anxiety Press. And 50% of all my royalties, I'm going to be donating to Planned Parenthood Oregon and to the Northwest Abortion Access Fund. So if you buy either the audio or the paperback, 50% of that is going straight to these charities that if you don't support, you know, fuck you, don't buy my book. That's that's basically my pitch. (laughs) So tell me about this monthly column you're going to be doing for a literary newspaper called and I think I'm pronouncing it right. Bell Esprit Project Magazine. Is that uh, correct? The Bell Esprit. Bell Esprit. Bell Esprit. Yeah. Uncultured um, swine I am. <laughs> <laughs> right, really cool story about it. So first of all, yeah, it's a newspaper that's also online and doesn't like a monthly newsletter, but it's also a printed newspaper based out of Portland, Oregon, where I'm from. And I'm going to be doing a monthly column reviewing indie books that I've read that I think deserve more attention. And the title of the uh, column is there are authors other than Dan Brown and fucking James Patterson <laughs> is the title. And uh, thank you to Emily Manguez for allowing that title to, to stay in print, which is so cool. And on top of that, I'm going to be writing basically a short story a month because I'm still writing short stories for this book, but I didn't want to just be Every time I write a new story, have it out there for free for people to, to read because then like they might not buy the book, you know, because <laughs> you can just read it all for free. So I'm going to be getting paid for these stories through this newspaper that you'd have to subscribe to to be able to read. So that way there's a bit of a paywall and you can read it if you want to. But otherwise, you know, you have all this new material that's going to be there that you haven't read when the book comes out. So, yeah, I'll be writing like a short story a month and a column every month for this monthly newspaper. And it's run by Emily Menges, who is a player on the Major League Women's Soccer team in Portland called the Portland Thorns, which is a wild thing. She's just a professional soccer player. How she found time to be the editor-in-chief of an entire newspaper is beyond me, but she's so cool. And we get along hella well, and we're both really excited about it. And it's a crazy story how we met. I used to work at this bar in downtown Portland, and the uh, owner of the bar knew the coach of the soccer team. So a lot of the Thorns players would come in from time to time or they do like some kind of, you know, private party after hours at it. And this one day, this woman comes in and is sitting at the bar while I'm behind there. And I see that she has a copy of The Great Gatsby and A Movable Feast by Hemingway. And she has a little notebook and she's like taking notes while she's writing. and. I'm like, I like books. You like books. Uh, you read books? And she's like, <laughs> yeah. And I was like, those are like some of my favorite books. I love A Movable Feast. That's maybe, that's one of my favorite Hemingway books. And she's like, mine too. And so we just kind of started shooting the shit talking about books. And as we're talking, people are kind of coming up to her being like, hey, I know who you are. I just want to say like, you're awesome. And people just kind of kept coming up to her and shaking her hand. I'm like, who the fuck are you? Why why does everybody know who you are? Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, like I play for the thorns. And I'm like, oh, I'll just pretend to know what that is. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Um, 
And so we kind of just, you know, chopped it up for a while and we got along and we were talking about books for a while. And she was like, yeah, I'm going to Australia for a few months, but then I'll be back and maybe I'll see you again. And I was like, okay, peace. And like a few months ago, I see an article in the Oregonian, just like, you know, the big newspaper in my state doing an article on the Bell Esprit and how it's run by this soccer player for the Thorns named Emily Menges. And the title of the newspaper is called the Bell Esprit, which is taken from a, a line in a movable feast. And I'm like, that's got to be her, right? I met her. We were, she was reading a movable feast and she's, she's a soccer player. That might be her. And so I just, I reached out on Instagram like, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but we like met before. And I like explained the circumstances of us meeting. And she was like, yeah, I remember you. Uh, you should send something through. And so I sent her a short story of mine called A Ticket for the Night Bus. And she loved it. And she decided to publish it in the October issue. And this was, you know, maybe a month ago now. And she asked to meet up and we met up at a bar and we're talking and, and kind of got into talking about indie books and how, you know, there's all these amazing writers in the indie book scene who just nobody knows about because it's so much harder to market these people who are, I mean, a lot of them are just fucking amazing at what they do. And she's like, hey, I got an idea. You're in the community. You're an indie writer. You know all these indie writers. You should write like a monthly column reviewing these books so they'll get a bigger audience. And uh, so that's what we came up with. And the first column that'll be out in October is about Stuart Buck's not novella called Quantum Diaper Punks, which is genius. It's such a good <laughs> book. And he's the editor in chief of Bear Creek Magazine or Bear Creek Gazette as well. And he's just the coolest dude. And he's such a great writer. So shout out to Stuart. I'm just really excited going forward. It's exciting to have like deadlines and like actual like work that is going to be continually getting put out and working with these cool people, especially like a local from my city. So that's just kind of starting out. And the first issue comes out in October. And if anybody wants to subscribe, it's just thebellastreetproject.com and you can find the social media and everything. But it's a really cool project that is about it's a newspaper so there's current events and everything but also just there's poetry there's short stories there's essays some written by emily herself the last one is a beautiful essay that she wrote yeah i couldn't be more excited about it i'm glad i get to talk about it now well so with all these projects you have in the works are you able to make a living as a writer or do you still hold we're down a day there. job getting there we're getting there oh yeah <laughs> i've i've i'm a working stiff i always have been um yeah but with this project and third book coming out, I've also started writing articles for this magazine called Return, Return.life, which they're paying me well to basically write about. I think the assignment I have right now is I'm going to be writing a review on this new horror movie that came out. And it just kind of took me a second to step back and think about that, you know, seven years ago, I was a drunk in my parents' basement. <laughs> writing these shitty short stories to nobody and now I'm getting paid to watch a horror movie. It's the coolest fucking thing and I'm so thankful. But yeah, so I'm working for them as well now. But the thing is, writing, you know, I've just accepted that I'm probably going to die poor. No matter how much I write, no matter <laughs> how much gets sold, probably yeah. still going to die poor. And that's why I wanted to donate half my royalties to The Monotony of Everlasting, this new novella, to these charities that are important to me because I got a regular job. I make the money I have to make. 
I do this because I love it, you know, and if I can help out people in the meantime, that's way cooler, you know, maybe one day I'll make this a full-time job, but I'm not really tripping on it. I'm just, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy for all these opportunities. Constantly, my mind is blown by the support and all these opportunities I've gotten. And that's enough for me. Maybe one day I'll be able to stop getting yelled at by fucking some 40 year old woman in a bob cut for not getting her table ready quick enough but (laughs) (laughs) but it's okay with me i don't mind working Uh uh-huh well so you said your artistic inspiration is van gogh and i think i see starry night directly Mm -hmm. behind you yeah Yeah. so uh can you give us some insight into that what sure yeah um yeah, I've got a bunch of his paintings all over. I actually have like an interpretation of Starry Night tattooed like on my whole arm up here. Uh, he's just, well, I think it's like two main things other than the obvious, which is just that I just find his paintings beautiful. And I really like art. I like paintings. I like learning about artists and the art that they make. No artist has ever really like, you know, stuck with me as much as his paintings have. But what I love about his work is that he was just kind of like a workhorse, kind of like me, you know? And everybody talks about how much he struggled and what a difficult life he led. And it's true, and he did. But he was just like so singularly focused on the art he made. He painted so much. He was so prolific. And it was obvious how much it mattered to him. It was like his purpose for living. At least it felt like it to somebody learning about him. It's like, this is what keeps him going. He's just got to paint. It just, it's what gives him purpose and what makes him feel good. And, and he's so good at it. And he didn't really get a lot of credit in his time. He started to towards the end of his life, but nowhere near what he is now. And he just painted anyway. He didn't really give a shit. He just loved to paint. And I have that same kind of mentality with my writing. I just, I feel very singularly focused. I love it so much. It feels like my purpose And it makes me feel good. It gives me a reason to be around, you know, to make this art. And so I really connected with that sentiment with him. And also what I love about his work also connected to his life is that, you know, he I mean, he was in and out of mental institutions. He uh, I believe he was bipolar, wasn't he? That's what we think. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. They they assume because he would go on these monstrous creative binges and then Mm -hmm. would just go like into a deep depression. Yeah. Yeah. And so he obviously like, you know, it was not an easy life for this man. But unlike a lot of other artists, and it's not like a good or bad thing at all but there are other artists like goya and i mean there's so many examples and and like picasso's blue period and that kind of thing where it's like their art very much reflects their mentality at the time you know they paint on the canvas their angst and their depression their anger and you can see it clearly in the way that they create their art but van gogh it's just like these beautiful vibrant colorful kind of like almost like daydreamy kind of otherworldly just beautiful paintings it makes me almost feel like i don't know i mean without like reading too much into it but i mean that's kind of half the fun but um (laughs) it's just like he didn't let this shit get to him he just wanted to make beautiful art Mm. that's what he wanted to do and he liked the way that he painted and they're just that was his subjective meaning of life yeah and it didn't come across in his paintings how much struggle was a part of his life 
And I just, there's just something so like tenacious and inspiring about that to me that somebody in such a dark place created these works of art that just, you look at them like they're just gorgeous and they just make you feel something different and good and happy. And I just, something about that just like really hits me deep. It's just a fascinating guy and just seemed like the strongest dude. And there's even like theories because what's more widely accepted is that he tried to shoot himself in the chest and kind of stumbled home and then died a couple of days later or maybe the day later. And it's the perfect ending to the story that people have. It's like, oh, he's this tortured artist who couldn't take it anymore and he killed himself. But now there's a lot of evidence coming out. Like, I'll give you like the short version or whatever. But basically, people are starting to find a lot of evidence that he was shot by somebody else, like a kid, like the 16 year old kid shot him and then like stole all his painting supplies because he had been going out to this place that he was going to paint and he didn't show up until nighttime. And that's when they got worried. But people think that he was actually shot by this kid, but to protect the kid, he said that he did it himself, which I think is just so much more beautiful and inspiring and so much more in line with how I see him as a man and an artist is that even in his last moments, he did something selfless. And that's kind of how I choose to see him, you know, and I take that again with myself is, you know, I've been through a lot of shit. I didn't have a great life. I still struggle with a lot of stuff, but I don't want to really reflect that so much in my writing anymore. I just want to create good, beautiful stories. And I want to have some kind of positive influence. And I don't want this negativity in my life that, you know, I've created or that was created upon me, whatever, to be the driving force of me as an artist, as a writer. And I don't want that to like be my legacy, just like Van Gogh. I don't want that to be his legacy, that he was this tortured artist who died tortured when there's so much more to that and there's so much more nuance to it. And I see a lot of hope and strength and beauty in the stories I hear about him and just in the art itself. And I want to embody that as well, where the things that I've struggled with aren't what define me, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of art with regard to specifically your art, if there's one thing you want your readers to take away from a crooked smile, what would it be? Um, have empathy for people who are struggling, you know, you never know what somebody's going through and everything is the result of something else, you know, bad decisions, negative mentality, poor decisions, whatever don't exist in a vacuum. There's always some reason for it. And I think the more often we're able to stop ourselves from giving like a knee jerk reaction to something which is so common now, you know, you read a headline and you're like, fuck that guy, you know? And it's like, there's, <laughs> there's so much more nuance to the human condition. Like it's all clickbait. Yeah. Give us a little more credit, use a little more critical thinking and take a step back and really like 
just use your brain, maybe just for fuck's sake, just like look at these people who are having trouble, who are struggling and maybe see it from a wider lens. And then maybe you'll be able to understand them better. And then maybe you'll be able to empathize with them better. And then maybe we'll all be able to feel a little better, be able to help them because you got to have empathy for someone to be able to help them. And that's what people who are struggling need is the help. So in a short answer, I hope this book brings empathy to people who are struggling. Well, Jack, it has been a blast talking with you. Yeah, I talked a whole lot. I'm sorry. Oh, that's what <laughs> that's what the show's for. It's a podcast. <laughs> I know that sounded stupid coming out, but I, I appreciate you letting me talk about all this stuff. It flew by. Um, thank you. Thank you very much for asking these great questions and, and letting me ramble about, you know, Van Gogh and psych wards and stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Yeah, might as well, right? Mm -hmm. I am a business after all. Let's do it. <laughs> um, so I have two books out. One is called Dancing to Broken Records. That's my first short story collection and the novel Crooked Smile out through Outcast Press. And my newest book, the novella The Monotony of Everlasting out through Anxiety Press comes out October 1st and you can find links to all my short stories, all my interviews, probably including this one when it comes out, links to all my books through my link tree that's in both my social medias, which is on Instagram and Twitter at Jack underscore is underscore Moody and come and hit me up, buy the stuff if you want. Let me know if you liked the writing. If you didn't, I don't particularly care. Um, <laughs> And I appreciate all the support that I've gotten. It's still wild to me. So everybody that maybe is watching this, who's read some of my stuff, you know, it's a dream. So thank you. Well, listeners at home, all links will be in the description. And Jack, thank you again for joining me. Thank you, Vince. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Yeah.